You are listening to Marquette University's COVID Convos podcast. In each episode, representatives from Marquette's STEM and humanities communities will bring you insights into the pandemic that you may be missing. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes, where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnick rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin's sovereign Anishabe, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. Hello, welcome to this episode of Marquette COVID Conversations. I'm Samantha Major. I am an assistant professor in English at the University of Marquette. And I'm joined today by Mark Paulus, director of Our Ways at the Indian Community School in Milwaukee. And today we're talking about COVID-19 and the Native American community, especially in Milwaukee and around Wisconsin. We'll talk a little bit more broadly about the Native community response and really talking about sort of the unique position that Native Americans are in with response to the the pandemic, their unique perspective and unique concerns. First, let me start with a a bit of a greeting here in the Dakota language. Marquette Wons Bewankantia Ed Hakdawani Ka Milwaukee Edwati. I just wanted to greet you in Dakota language. I am Dakota and Assiniboine, and I wanted to say all my relatives, I greet you in a good way. My name is Samantha Major. Again, I work at Marquette and I live in Milwaukee. I this is my first year living in Milwaukee. I'm coming from Minnesota and Minneapolis. That's my my home and my homelands, and I'm happy to be here. But Mark, if you would please introduce yourself. And so I introduced myself in the Oneida language. I'm Oneida. I'm also Wolf Clan. Nehalawakashus is my name. Um, because it's so hard to spell, I often go by Mark Polis. Um, as Sam mentioned, I work at the Indian Community School as the director of our ways, where I'm asked to make sure we have native language and culture involved with everything that we do. I've been down here in the Milwaukee area for about 18 years, I think, having moved up from around the Oneida area, which is next to Green Bay, uh, in here in the state of Wisconsin. Great. Oh, so it's probably, I probably, I forget sometimes that not everyone speaks Oneida, so I translate a little bit. So in addition to introduce myself, so I'm very happy to be able to be here and be able to uh, say some of these words. Happy for each and every one of you who are able to join us here today as well. And every day I'm thankful to the creator for giving us another beautiful day. Thank you. As I said before, I, you know, we wanted to have this particular episode to talk about the Native community, again, because I think we really have a unique perspective on the pandemic. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the Native history with 
other pandemics and epidemic disease. But I think we also really want to talk about what's going on right here in our, our immediate community. And here in Wisconsin, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're from Marquette, if you're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin is home to 11 federally recognized tribes. Of course, many other tribal nations have called this land that we're on home for many years, uh, time in memoriam. Indigenous people have always lived here and continue to live here. Just want to sort of recognize we had a land acknowledgement at the beginning, but really we could expand that land acknowledgement in so many ways because this place has always been home to Indigenous people and still is. And Indigenous people across those centuries have dealt with situations like the one we're going through now with COVID-19. So again, we have unique perspectives and also uh, unique concerns. So starting with thinking about our history, I was wondering, Mark, what have you heard from the community or maybe from relatives? How are people connecting their family stories and collective histories to what's happening now with this COVID-19 outbreak? I think that's a really good topic because we see ourselves as Native people as being very close together close to other people as well as close to all the spiritual aspects of creation, historically and, and currently as well. And certainly we have been through pandemics before, right? The Spanish flu time, early 1900s, as well as shortly after time of contact for, for quite a while. And we suffered, you know, our numbers, population suffered greatly as a result of those pandemics. Even thinking about here in the area, the, the, the name Milwaukee, different nation, different First Nations claim kind of have some claim to what that means, but most, we're mostly familiar with the Anishinaabemo and with the Minnewake being such a, a great gathering place, so, so to say. And that reminds me all the time that this is a place where our indigenous people came to for a long, long time to gather here, gather by the shores of the lake, gather, have our meetings, our ceremonies, gather and cross and from people. It was you know, much like this Great Lakes region is today. It's, it's a place for commerce and trade and, and visiting and, and all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of a bustling area here for you know well longer time than what it's been the state of wisconsin or the city of milwaukee and, and whatnot but it is some of the old stories i've heard stories from the older folks <laughs> kind of how our our wisdom gets handed down right it's the grandparents who heard it from their grandparents who heard it from their grandparents those are the stories we get to bring along yeah that, that when the pandemics came through in the past that really we we needed to remain close to each other as family units, we were pretty self-sufficient and independent and able to carry on everything we needed to carry on just within our families. And there's certain responsibilities that we need to do to maintain a positive relationship with everything in creation. So ceremonies and gratitude, things like that, that we, can, that we carried on at that time as well. But it was also a time of social distancing. Right? We didn't have, we had medicines that worked for lots of things, but when large pandemics come along, we didn't really have medicines that were effective at preventing that. So social distancing was kind of the, the thing to do at that time as well. And even hear that again now, like, geez, we, we've done this, we have the same stories, we've been through it before, and the same with the majority population having been through the Spanish flu. I'm trying to remember what that was like, with the scarlet fever outbreak, when measles was coming around quite a bit, and things like, what did our people do at those times? And that's, that's what I've been told quite a bit, is, is it was a time of, pretty you know, I'd say it's funny now because it's almost the same. So we have conversations at a distance. We didn't maybe say exactly six feet, but we learned pretty quickly that these things are transmitted from contact with other people and 
to kind of keep some distance in there while continuing on our responsibilities. Yeah, it's been amazing to see some of those strategies come back into play through story and to hear some of those family stories that perhaps we don't talk about as often now. As a lit person, I when all of this started and I was teaching, started thinking about all the ways in which Native writers have also addressed this sort of memory of what Native people have gone through, especially in that early part of the 20th century, waves of, of disease or epidemics and pandemics like we're doing now. Again, that, that memory comes up. And one of the pieces that immediately comes to mind is just that beginning section of Louise Erdrich, her novel Tracks. And now Louise Erdrich famed internationally, nationally, locally, Ojibwe writer. I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs, if I might, of her novel tracks here. And just to set it up, it's, it begins in the winter of 1912. And that sort of turn of the century moment from the 19th into the 20th century for indigenous peoples, this was really the nadir of native populations where, where our populations were at their lowest point for multiple reasons, including these sort of waves of disease that were compounded by exile, removal from, from homelands, disrupted trade networks, and, and lots of hardship during this period. And so these first paragraphs which are really narrated by one of her most fam famous characters, Nana Push, capture that sense of, of a memory of that time. So again, set in 1912. She writes, We started dying before the snow, and like the snow, we continued to fall. It was surprising there were so many of us left to die for those who survived the spotted sickness from the south, our long fight west to not a Sioux land where we signed the treaty, and then a wind from the east bringing exile in a storm of government papers. What descended from the north in 1912 seemed impossible. By then we thought disaster must surely have spent its force. That disease must have claimed all of the Anishinaabe that the earth could hold and bury. But the earth is limitless, and so is luck and so were our people once. Granddaughter, you are the child of the invisible, the ones who disappeared when along with the first bitter punishments of early winter, a new sickness swept down. The consumption, it was called by young Father Damien, who came in that year to replace the priest who succumbed to the same devastation as his flock. This disease was different from the pox and fever, for it came on slow. The outcome, however, was just as certain. Whole families in your relatives lay ill and helpless in its breath. On the reservation, where we were forced close together, the clans dwindled. Our tribe unraveled like a coarse rope, frayed at either end as the old and new among us were taken. My own family was wiped out one by one, leaving only Nanapush. And after, although I had lived no more than 50 winters, I was considered an old man. I'd seen enough to be one. In the years I passed, I saw more change than in a hundred upon a hundred before. I just wanted to share 
those opening paragraphs of the novel and, and this novel and then its companion, Four Souls, are well worth reading, I think, especially in this moment. If people are sort of taking some respite in doing some reading, I highly recommend them because the story goes on. He's, you know, in this, in the, even in this opening where he's really talking about large scale destruction due to illness at that time and sort of a combination of things. The story goes on, he's talking to his granddaughter, and so you get this sense of how the family picks up and continues from this, this low point. And so, again, when we think about these histories, even in my own family history, there's, a, there's this story of very early deaths in the early 20th century, where a lot of these sort of family connections, family histories, Things are, are severed by disease and at the same time, uh, beautifully, as we see in, in Native writers like Erdrich's stories here, there is that sort of resilience, continuation, and we see how those characters draw on traditions and sort of new innovations in order to continue forward. So uh, that's what I really love about literature and, and sort of what Native literature has to show us right now. I like that too. It seems to be a nice balance. I think a lot of our oral history, those aren't stories that we often recount. I think there's, uh, we've had a, you know, a long and amazing history with lots of ups and downs. And in the stories I'm familiar with, we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on the hardship parts of it. It's kind of what what is blossomed out of that hardship. Like what, is, what are the amazing things that have you know, become after that? I find that remarkable and through our oral history, numerous stories, you, you hear about this, these great things and it's kind of the question comes like, well, what, what was going on before that? Like, what were the conditions that got things to be where, where, you know, it really was this kind of this glorious reawakening or coming back out of it and, and time and time again, it's out of something that's rather tragic or extremely difficult. And I think we see the same kind of things in our oral history about after pandemics in the past that not really necessarily dwelling on the fact that it happened and went through. I mean, that's I think living a spiritual life is part of life. There's there's births and there's deaths and there's hardships and there's things to celebrate. Not, nobody is promised an ideal life in this world, as far as I've heard about. So it is really looking at having that, it's always having that your mind turned towards gratitude, so to say. So it's about the survival and who survived and, and all of our ways that have continued on. And, and I find that remarkable, again, just a common theme that living the life, as I'm understanding, has been intended by the creator, doesn't protect you from these things that are happening. It, right. it is really, it's a way to continue to live and have gratitude and accept the things that happen and just continue moving on, doing, doing our part in our life. And I find it remarkable, just the parts of stories that I remember from some of these things, those are the things that, that stand up. Right, talking about all this, all these people that were passing away, and even a hand, just a handful of years ago, we ran across the unmarked graves, really an unmarked graveyard, mm. mostly of graves that were of child size that people didn't even know about. So these things weren't really recorded. But in the newspaper clippings, you can see there were pandemics that had gone through, and this had happened to the community. But those, those, the tragic part of the story isn't the part of the story that's told and retold and retold. It's more of the the survivors and what we've done in the after those times that we rebuilt and came were able to come back together and celebrate and again live life more fully as intended so i, I love Absolutely. the balance of, of looking at both sides of it 
yeah, those strategies and stories of relatives who, who then carried on, of course. And what's interesting is, you know, early on when everything shut down, we really started to learn about what COVID-19 might entail for us, that it, it did become a worldwide pandemic, of course. There were interesting things, how much came out on social media as far as platforms for Indigenous people to share some of those stories and strategies and also continue our sort of normal sense of community in a way using social media platforms. I think about if you look up hashtag social distancing powwow, you see a lot of people sharing things, but also you'll see a lot of people dancing traditional dances because of course the the powwow season is really shut down uh, as are most large gatherings like that. And so folks are carrying on those things in a different way right now. That's really amazing to see. And part of that is seeing the, not the resurgence because it has, it hasn't, uh, you know, ever gone away, but the jingle dance tradition that started in that 1919 flu epidemic, you know, that was again, that worldwide influenza in that early part of the 20th century. And in part of response to that, we developed this jingle dress tradition, Ojibwe tradition. I I see it more and more, and it's being celebrated more and more right now, Uh, but it's a healing tradition. Yeah, I think that's a a really good point. Trying to remember even, I think a lot of our people, when we heard the word pandemic, I think took it pretty serious, having, having been through and having been able to survive that in the past. And then it is, I think pretty quickly, from what I saw, it was our young people that were the ones that kind of picked this up. Not the little, little ones, but right, teens and 20s and, and that kind of that, that generation that I started to look to. And asked, actually, I've been asked, asked the questions by people of that, that age group, like, well, what do we do? Or what do we do when you know, as we come out of this? How do we celebrate and mourn things? And what, do we, you know, what are our ways around this kind of a thing? We've seen it before. And then the same, they, they started to pick that up. And my understanding with the jingle dress dance, that was a gift for the women. So as a man, I don't really know much about that. That wouldn't be my place to speak about it or teach about it. But that it came out of that, like you said, it came out of a time of needing healing. So it was gifted to the women, really, but to help all the people to heal from things. That's, that's the power of that, that dress and the power of those songs and the power of that dance is for healing. So, like you said, you see it on social media quite a bit. Small groups getting together, big groups, big groups, you know, through different platforms. Um, where we can connect through video and, and uh, see each other and what we're doing. And to me, it's really been been amazing to see that. And, and even the more requests for that, like, hey, we've got more stuff going on. Would that healing apply to this? Or would that healing also apply to something else? And, of course, in some ways it would. We need to talk to our women who, who kind of keep that medicine to Right. Um, I know more about that. And then to me, it also opens the conversation up to other healing ways that we have that may be beneficial in those situations as well. So to me, that's part of that, the positive side of the story comes out of it is, yeah, there's a lot of tragedy going on and, and certainly we're not unaffected by it, yet we're able to look to our ways as really the strength of who we are and to carry us forward you know, through this and really even at the front end, thinking about and talking about how are we going to come out of this on the other side of it. Yeah. It's really remarkable because 
the jingle dress tradition started almost exactly a hundred years ago. And so many people in this past year have been, you know, bringing forth their research on it, at least in the, in the academic world. I think of Brenda Child's work. I know it's very close to her heart. She's Red Lake Ojibwe. And I highly recommend looking at some of the interviews and articles she's done recently with the onset of COVID-19, but already the work she had been doing with commemorating that, that hundred years of the jingle dress. It's interesting to me to think about where it started with, you know, again, an illness and a, a spiritual call to healing and what the dance does. Again, something to learn more about elsewhere. But another interesting piece of it is a hundred years ago when that dance ceremony was being performed, uh, it was not legal for indigenous people to perform religious ceremonies like that. And so very interesting to think about that time versus now and the ways that Indigenous people are taking back up those healing ceremonies, those healing ways, using our traditional knowledges, traditional ecological knowledges in ways that are, we're much more free to do so now. I, you know, I mean, it's, you see the jingle dress dance being performed and women coming together in a good way, practicing social distance, but coming together to do this dance for healing for everybody. And it's on social media. It's very visible. Whereas if we think about our relatives a hundred years ago, this was very privately, even secretly done, right? Yeah, that's a great point. I thought about even in the beginning of our, our introductions, you're speaking a Siouxian based, you know, family language, I've got a Yerkoin family language. There's, yeah. you know, hundreds of different native languages. And, and oftentimes people don't know that. They think maybe there's one or, or we have very simplistic languages based on what you see in media and all those stereotypes and biases. In fact, it's the opposite. Our languages are quite complex. And really within our language, it, it carries your world with you. It carries how we understand the world, how we interact with the world, what our relationship is with everything all around us. And in times like this, we're reminded that it's also a unique way to view a problem or an yeah. issue with unique ways to solve that, unique solutions. So you know, our, our languages have been under pressure for a long time and some are, some are extinct, some are on the verge of that. We're all at various uh, levels of that uh, difficult time in our languages. And that's one of the big risks when we lose languages across the world is that we lose really unique ways to understand the world and unique ways to come up with solutions to large world problems such as and you, and, um, coincidentally such as a pandemic right so we look right. at something that affects the entire world and those were our things so all of our uh, religious practices and spiritual ways were outlawed until 1978 right and so i'm a little bit older than some people but that's really not ancient history that's not that long ago um, certainly within my lifetime that those things first became legal so it was you know, even even something as important and powerful as a jingle dress dance was illegal and had to be done in secret or in hiding and still was done as carrying out that responsibility of ensuring healing for all people, not just for my family or for Native people, but for all people on the planet. So we've been able to somewhat miraculously keep those ceremonies continuing on to benefit all of mankind, all of humankind, yes. you know, as we move through all the troubles throughout the world. Yeah, it's it's been extraordinary to watch. 
it also, the point about languages makes me think about another aspect or response to the pandemic that I thought was somewhat unique I was seeing in indigenous circles, which is thinking about this virus as a living being that we're in relationship to and thinking about our relationships to the non-human world and how we really need to rethink some of those relationships in, in order to combat these kinds of waves of disease. And so again, and I think that as you're saying, really does come from our languages and even just our, the, the grammatical structure of our languages that informs a different way of looking at relationships between human and non-human beings. I know that's true for Dakota language. That to me, knowing knowing English and, and being a learner of Dakota, it really stands out that just in the structure of the language's grammar, there's just a different perspective on those relationships. Right. Yeah, that's a, I would agree. It's the same for us, different understanding of it and then also a different understanding of how to heal those relationships when they're when they've been damaged. Yeah. I wanted to talk also about sort of our response to and, and, and perhaps our unique challenges with COVID-19. And one of the things that really stands out to me, and I know we've addressed in some of the other podcasts, issues of race in the response. And one of the things I'm seeing is it's actually really difficult to get good data about how COVID-19 is affecting indigenous communities and different tribes. And part of that is data collection is actually, you know, you would think data collection, it should be quite straightforward, but reporting about particular communities, reporting ethnicity and race uh, becomes quite its own narrative where a lot of indigenous people, Native American people, uh, people enrolled in tribes get categorized in hospitals in ways that don't sort of signal what's going on in those particular communities. Uh, sometimes they're marked in, in other categories, sometimes often marked as other. So in the, re the reporting by the CDC, uh, Native people are sort of erased from that record at any specific level. And so we kind of know what's going on in certain places depending on the reporting and what is sort of available to the public, which is not much. Yeah, I would agree. I think even historically, like I said, we we you know, happened to find a, a graveyard of a bunch of children's graves, dozens that were not in the record anywhere, and we were able to piece together probably what happened based on on the rates of death reported in the local newspaper around that time, pertaining to you know a particular reservation area. Otherwise, we weren't able to find any medical records or any hospital records or any kind of other public health data at that time. That was probably from the 30s, 1930s, so not that long ago, but you know, right. a while ago. And then it is now, too, we, we started doing more in the community here in the Milwaukee area to address some of these things. A unity fire was, was had for several days. People were invited and social distancing and masking and feasting was done differently. So there's no, you know, no kind of common food serving line. It's individual food, individual dishes, and, and taking yeah. care of your, really, really kind of more taking care of yourself. In some ways it's good because there's less waste and it's more you know, ecologically friendly. Right. Other ways it's, it's for adapting to from what we're familiar with. But even there we talked about, there are some zip codes in the Milwaukee area that, that we don't have data on, even here. 
in, in, you know, in Milwaukee. Um, and those are zip codes where most of our native people live. They're heavily populated with native people. So it's disappointing that we don't have you know, better data to know what the impact is, what the need is, which is on access, all those kinds of things. I'll be a whole other podcast or a series of podcasts, you know, right. in depth on that kind of stuff. But you know, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. And, and we had talked earlier, there was an article that came out not long ago out of the Chicago area for their Indian Health Services office down there, that they are just unable to get the numbers they're looking for to make sure that they're serving the population well, and they can't, they can't get access to that data. Yeah, that was a Daily Northwestern article put out on just June 22nd. And basically, they reported that they needed to do a Freedom of Information Act request in order to reveal sort of the, the numbers for American Indians within the city. And of course, what they did find once they got the data was that American Indians within the Chicago population were along with sort of everybody else, the same amount of COVID cases, but they were disproportionately affected in the mortality rate. And this is why data is important, right? And, and, and perhaps, you know, again, not to go into a whole nother podcast, which it's worthy of, but this is why the data is important because we know that Native American communities historically and today suffer from health and economic disparities that given what we know about COVID-19, this is a population that will be disproportionately affected by the nature of, of this virus. And so to not have the data, we are not as effective in serving those populations. And, and so again, you know, it's one of those things that is a point of interest, something to keep an eye on. And, and we really need to call for clarity in, in our data reporting. So these communities are served. And just to bring it back around, one of the first things I thought about when we started to learn more about COVID-19 and that it's particularly devastating to elder populations, again, those are our language keepers. Those are our knowledge keepers. We cherish them. And it's, it's you know, that to me is, is a very scary part of this even though I think we do have so many resources within our communities, so much knowledge that we're bringing forth and good practice, um, it, you know, it is, it is a scary time in that regard. I agree. I concur. <laughs> so as we sort of think about the Native perspective, the unique perspective, drawing on our, our history, our traditions, and then our contemporary response, you know, again, one of the most enlightening things, interesting things. And one of the things that just personally I've loved to see has been how people are, are reflecting through social media and connecting in ways that are a mix of traditional and, and contemporary. And I wanted to sort of uh, go back to the jingle dress and uh, again, Folks in our community here in Milwaukee have been gathering together to dance with masking, with social distancing, but gathering together and to dance not just for healing and with regard to the pandemic, but also with regard to the social injustice issues that have arisen and in my mind go hand in hand. Again, when we talk about that data collection issue, when we talk about health disparities and economic disparities that are having a marked 
reflection in, you know, who's really suffering with COVID-19. They go hand in hand. And so it's been uh, really heartening and empowering to see the Native women practicing the jingle dance here in Milwaukee for both of those combined causes and calling for healing. And one of those dancers I want to point to is also an internationally, nationally renowned poet, Kimberly Blazer, a White Earth Ojibwe. And I'd like to read one of her, her poems, if I can. It's called Ikwe Nime, Dancing Resistance. 365 jingles in rows upon my dress, turned by the hands of one who deserted, escaped a mandated pipestone education. 266 miles looking backwards for pursuit, hiding from promised punishments by day, migrating like Hmong relatives by moonlight. 365 ribbons hold the jingles to my dress, colorful strips cut, tied, and threaded, stitched by the laughing women of my childhood, women who earned $2.25 for peace-stitching geese aprons, potholders, whose stiff fingers tapped drum beats to sew by. 365 prayers swing and tap one against another, Zongweiwei Magude, ancient medicine dress, silver-coned legacy, sounding the cleansing voice of rain, 145th White Earth Nation celebration powwow, the weight of Anishinaabe history on my back, a dress made light by resistance, this healing in art. Yeah, that, that's really good, profound. There's, yeah. a lot, there's a lot in there, if you understand. If you want to study all the history, there's just, she's amazing. She's right on with it. Yeah, and I think, you know, in this time, things like dance and art and poetry connect us to all the things that make life worth living. And actually, you know, I always say, love my history friends, but sometimes history and truth are best told by literature and and fiction and, and art. And in that, I just really love that she's celebrating, you know, 145 years at White Earth and that continuing tradition and this idea that through hard times like this, we do persist, we innovate, we continue on. And, and I love that sense of, of resistance and strength she gives at the end there. I also think it's a nice reminder that these are, these are current things that we're doing. So we're, you know, a lot of times we're portrayed as being historical and, and something that continues to live in the past. And it's really, to me, nothing could be further from the truth Right. is that we continue with our ways. Our ways have an incredibly long history. We've been part of this land here for eons, and our ways have been gifted to us and have grown over time, all that, over all that time, really. And we continue to carry on our, our celebrations and continue to carry on our ceremonies, even this year. So we're not able to gather like, we, like we're used to, yet our leaders continue to carry on our ceremonies. So we continue with those responsibilities to continue to advocate for all the people really I mean, frankly that's what we're about is all the people it's not yeah. just us against them or whatever we see all that we're all the people it's all all that people family right we our view as a creator made things in families and the people are are intended to be a family and, yeah. and i kind of joke a lot of times it's not like 
not like modern time where we see these dysfunctional families, right? We're really <laughs> intended to be there for each other, have each other's back all the time, advocate for each other all the time, be that really super strong, yeah. um, tight knit family community that we're intended to be. We, you know, we're people, so we forget these ways all the time and we need to be reminded. And that's why we have these ceremonies and different practices to remind us to have that gratitude, to remind us to have that close connection and really be watching out for each other all the time. Not that it's a burden or you know, thing extra to do, it's just how we live your life to make sure that you're doing good things and, and helping you know, your, your fellow uh, humankind all around you to make sure that we continue on with those things. So I really appreciate you reading that, that by Tim Blazer. To me, it really, it really kind of hits that on the head. It's not, not selfish, not about her, not about something protective. It's, these are all the elements. Those are actually some of the elements that go into that dress and medicine intentionally thought of ahead of time to ensure survival and celebrations into the future for generations to come. Yeah, beautifully said. And I, I think I, I just want to say, uh, I thank you all for listening. I want to thank Mark in particular for uh, having this conversation with me. And I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think the way forward through this is together and reaffirming those kind of values. So uh, really appreciate talking to you today. Same here. Yeah, I won't go. Thank you very much. I appreciate you for sure for helping get this set up and getting it going. And we can do this even at a distance. So it's pretty, pretty cool to be able to do that these days. Yep. And I appreciate everybody who's listening and, and checked in here at Marquette University as well for making this an opportunity. And for everybody who's been taking part in not only recording this, but taking out all of our mistakes so we can sound like we're really, really awesome. So it's, it's a nice <laughs> benefit to have of these things as well. I won't go. Pidamayaye. Thank you for listening to this episode of COVID Convos. You can learn more about this podcast and the research being done at Marquette University by visiting the Research and Innovation website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at covidconvos at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is Phase 2 by Zylo Psycho.